My, my subject, subject of this lecture, Moses Hess, was born in 1812 in the city of Bonn. He was the son of the first generation of Jews to be, so to speak, liberated from the ghetto by the occupation of the Rhineland by the French. The French occupied the Rhineland in 1795 and left it in 1815. And in that period, the gates of the ghetto were flung open and the Jews at last were admitted to the light of day. When the Prussian monarchy annexed the Rhineland after the defeat of Napoleon, it sought and succeeded in reimposing some of their old restrictions. This naturally created a terrible crisis among the Jews of that particular district. They had only been admitted a very short time before to the rights and to the enjoyments of a larger life of the Western world. And now they were once more to be pressed back into the darkness from which they had been freed so shortly before. The crisis took them in very different ways. Some of them could not tolerate the thought of returning to the old oppression. And some of them accepted baptism with various degrees of, varying degrees of sincerity. People like Berner, people like Karl Marx's father, people like Heine, the very brilliant Hegelian lawyer Edward Gunz, Ludwig Stahl, who then founded, later founded the Christian um, Socialist Party in Germany, all accepted baptism. On some Jews, however, it had the opposite effect. On the contrary, they clung with all the more pride and all the more tenacity to the faith of their fathers. And among these was the family of the Hesses, who had originally come from Poland. Nobody quite seems, seems to know quite what date. Uh, Moritz Hess, as he was called at birth, was brought up in Bonn. His father moved in 1817 to Cologne, where he opened, he started a, a, a business as a sugar refiner, in which he became very prosperous. And the boy was brought up by his grandfather, who was a pious old businessman in the city of Bonn, uh, who left a very profound impression on the boy indeed. That's quite clear. He used to read the Bible with him, he used to read the Talmud with him, and in his later memoirs, Moses Hess tells us how this good old man, uh, who used to read these classics with him in the evening, used to shed salt tears when he spoke about the exile of the Jews from uh, Palestine, how he used to describe to him, how he used to read to him passages from the prophet Jeremiah about Rachel weeping in her grave as Rama over the Jews being driven off to the Babylonish captivity and that kind of thing. And there's no doubt that throughout Hesse's life, the images and the memories of the Bible and of Jewish history in general remained in a very indelible manner. Throughout his writings, even his most socialist, most communist writings, these things recur. And it is in virtue of that that his uh, more irreligious associates, such as Marx and Engels, used in after years to refer to him contemptuously as Rabbi Moses or Rabbi Hess. In, in the 20s, the family, he moved to Cologne to, 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 to his father, and in 1830, he went to the University of Bonn. We know nothing about his life there. There is no record of his having ever matriculated even. All we know is that after a year or two there, he displayed extreme signs of impatience and began to be rather tiresome to his father. That is to say, he refused to go into the family business. He began reading books. He was attracted to then, the then widespread social movements which were sweeping over France and had begun to touch Germany. He, had, he imported various books from France and began to convert himself towards some kind of shadowy socialism. In the end, as many young men do under those conditions, particularly emancipated sons of prosperous but somewhat uh, respectable fathers, he quarreled with his parents and left his um, native town and wandered off with very little money indeed to Holland, Switzerland, Belgium, Paris. He, we find him in Paris in the 1830s living on very small sums of money and they're avidly consuming the whole of that vast socialist and communist literature which at that time was being 
boring from the French presses. So far as one could tell, he converted himself to some species of idealistic communism. It wasn't what we later think of as Marxism at all. It was some kind of, at that period anyhow, the disciples of Saint-Simon and Fourier and the like were preaching what in general is a combination of a planned economy and social egalitarianism. Mulder who at all times of his life, was an extremely idealistic, good-hearted, not very clever, kindly, sympathetic, if effervescent young man, absorbed these doctrines like a sponge. And by the time he wandered back to Germany, he was fully, fully converted to the socialist or communist. There was no difference in those days between these words. Socialist or communist doctrines which maintained that the possession of private property was the root of all evil, that men would never shake off um, the miseries and the injustices in which they lived until the power of wealth was broken and until some kind of collective or social life, as he called it, was created on earth. He came back to Germany in the middle 30s and began to preach this doctrine fervently to his German friends. He lived the kind of, he, he, his first book, which was printed in 37, which was called The Sacred History of Mankind, is the kind of book which every young German intellectual of that period felt it necessary to write. It's an amalgam of Hegelian philosophy, a certain number of verses in the Bible, a good deal of metaphysical interpretation of history. I won't go through it for you. It's really a very inferior work, which his biographers pay some attention to, but which was unread in its day, so there's no copies, as far as one can tell, and is, was justly forgotten. The main importance of it for us is that already then he maintained that um, the important uh, task before modern mankind was the creation of a united humanity governed by uh, the emancipated spirit of man, not as materialistic as the French wanted it, not as idealistic as the German metaphysical philosophers wanted it, but some kind of rather shadowy, frightfully confused, rather muddled solidarity of human beings um, bound together by common sense of justice and affection. There's very really not much more in it than that. Uh, he described himself at that period as a disciple of Spinoza. Well, his biographer piously says he was deeply influenced by Spinoza. I think if you look at his works, there is no trace of any influence of the great 17th century master. He was a popular figure among the German romantics of the period. I dare say Hess gained from him some notion of the unity of nature, God, mankind, something of the kind. But beyond rather trite monism of this sort, Spinoza doesn't really seem to have had much influence on him. But I think he was rather proud and pleased that Spinoza was a Jew and therefore desired to be influenced by him, was pleased to think that he was a disciple. Although I'm afraid he didn't take the trouble of reading his works very carefully, or if he did, his writings betrayed no influence of such learning. Uh, shortly after this, uh, toward, toward the end of the 30s, Hess became a journalist in the Rhineland and began to collaborate in various radical publications, which again was a normal enough thing for a young man of that time. His second book, published in 1841, was called The European Triarchy, which was published in the to a book called The European Pentarchy. Again, we needn't stop very long over that. It was simply a scheme for the purpose of resisting Russia, which was then regarded as a reservoir of the most violent black reaction by the three great and noble powers of Europe, France, Germany, England. Germany had emancipated the spirit of man, France had emancipated the social life of man, and England was responsible for political and economic liberty. These three nations must then come together and work in common for the greater good of mankind. At this point, he suddenly begins to mention the Jews, to whom there are only very cursory references in the early work. He takes a line which is approximately that of most socialists and indeed Protestant theologians of the time. He says the Jews have played out their part. 
They were once a very important nation, indeed, the Mosaic uh, law and the ancient kingdom of the Jews was exactly what Hegel would have had it to be, a close union of church, religion, state, and social life. They were exactly approved. But the Jews have closed their path by paving the way to Christianity, and now they were obsolete and must go. He didn't indulge in the anti-Semitic Philippics of Karl Marx, who had a temperament very different from Hesse's. Karl Marx, as we, uh, everyone knows who has read his early work, simply took the line, that really took the line of wanting to eliminate any possibility of being insulted as a Jew in later life. And that was simply decided to liquidate the whole problem. What Karl Marx did was to say, there is no such nationality, no such religion, no such race as the Jews. They are simply moneylenders, the product of capitalist vice. And when the communist revolution occurs, the Jews, simply a symptom of the general malaise of the world, will automatically evaporate. This was an authentic line, exactly the same line as was taken by the most rabid anti-Semites throughout the 19th century, of whom Karl Marx could, say, could certainly be counted as an important leader. Karl Hess, who had a much more amiable and much more sentimental temperament than Marx, doesn't say anything of this kind. He continues to remember his grandfather's lessons. He bears no resentment or hatred towards the Jews, even at this early period, as we shall see. All he says is that really the, the Jews are now something of a historical anomaly. Surely, even if they cannot baptize themselves, they can at least offer baptism to their children. And by judicious and quiet intermarriage, in populations around them, they can peacefully, slowly dissolve in a dignified manner and thus to cease to the problem troubling the faithful of mankind. Well, this was an absolute commonplace which both Protestant theologians and assimilated and baptized Jews were at that time preaching. The only thing which is slightly, which is slightly inconsistent with this attitude is what occurred in 1840, which is a notable year in his life. In 1840, there was a famous Damascus case about which people here may or may not know. The Damascus case was one of the regular cases of the accusation of famous blood libel, the famous accusation of ritual murder by the Jews in the city of Damascus, which caused immense fuss, which afterwards a mission headed by Moses Montefiore from England and Adolf Cremieux from France managed to um, assuage, they managed to, to, to do something to improve the position of the Jews in Syria at that time. Hess was deeply affected by this, but, and felt, suddenly felt, violent Jewish sentiment surging in his breast, so he tells us later. But, he said to himself, the sufferings of the proletariat are more important than the sufferings of the Jews. Justice for the Jews is an important issue, but justice for the workers is a greater issue. And so he declares that he simply suppressed this feeling in himself, eliminated it, and applied himself to the greater, nobler task of securing emancipation for all mankind, which would automatically bring about that of the Jews too. In eight, the same year, 1840, there was a great uh, surge of patriotic feeling in Germany, Francophone feeling. And the famous Wacht am Rhein was written by a man called Becker. Well, Hess, which you, uh, you may now imagine, was a man easily, who easily floated on high currents of sudden feeling. He was not a very equable figure, but liable to strong emotional storms. Suddenly felt himself patriotic German and decided to set these words to music. And so he set the Wacht am Rhein to music. I think the words are, we sollen ihn nicht haben den freien deutschen Rhein. He set the words to music and sent it to the author. He received a polite, well, cold letter from the author in his own handwriting, but on the back of the envelope, in a disguised hand, the author suddenly produced a small anti-Semitic scribble, saying, Sie sind ein Jid. This shook Hess. He really had an agonizing moment when he thought that Becker had insulted him and deliberately insulted him, which turned out to be the case. And he tells us in his memoirs later that this is the thing which began a process which was destined to have lasting effect upon him. He began saying to himself that perhaps Becker was right, 
that although the Jews were in some sense not Germans, the Jews in some sense were a race and a people in themselves, and that although it was not the fact that difference of race justified one member of one race in insulting the members of another, yet in a way Becker was right. He had no right suddenly to pose as a hundred percent Teuto-maniac, as they were called, hundred percent German patriot, when in fact he really belonged to quite a different dispensation. In fact, he wrote a letter to Becker to that effect at some later stage. But this was still very early. We are still in 1840-41. Well, in the 40s, he was a typical young Hegelian radical. He believed in socialism, and in 41, he met Karl Marx. He, the effect of his meeting with Karl Marx, I think, is that he probably, I don't say that he converted him to full-fledged communism, he converted Engels. Engels tells us in one of the early night papers, in the early 40s, that he was in fact converted to communism by Moses Hess, who was the first German communist. First full-fledged, 100% German communist on German soil. And therefore had a considerable influence, I must say, he has much to be responsible for. As for Karl Marx, Karl Marx, I think, was drifting in that direction already, but apparently Hess's fervid sermons did make some impression upon him. Hess was absolutely enchanted by Marx. He thought he was the most marvelous human being whom he'd ever, ever met. I think perhaps that I could find a passage for in which he describes Karl Marx at this, uh, this particular period. You will see certain impression which Marx made upon him. He says about Marx, he is the greatest, perhaps the only true philosopher actually now alive. Dr. Marx, that is the name of my idol, is still a very young man, he is five years younger than himself. He is only 24 and will strike the final death blow of medieval religion and politics. He combines philosophical depth with the most biting wit. Imagine Rousseau, Voltaire, Holbach, Lessing, Heine, Abel, not thrown together anyhow, but fused into a single magnificent personality, and you have Dr. Marx. <laughs> well, from this we'll judge that he was very liable, he was liable to be carried away by feelings, and indeed Marx, when he was 24, no doubt did make a very fine and, 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 and lasting impression upon his disciples. At any rate, I think we may uh, ascribe it to um, Hess, that it was his transmission of the doctrines of the French masters which finally administered the coup de grace and pushed Marx over into what ultimately became called the doctrine of socialism and communism. Until then, he was simply a young Hegelian who still worshipped the Hegelian notion of the bureaucratic state as being the ultimate, uh, so to speak, um, ideal of organized mankind. The anti-state doctrines come really from Hess. Well, in the late 40s, Hess wandered about, collaborated with various radical journalists in the Rhineland, went to Paris, was expelled from Paris, went to Brussels, converted Bakunin to some kind of anarchism, which is one of the, so to speak, side moves, so to speak, of this rather extraordinary personality, met Proudhon, met Cadet, made friends with them, and generally became one of the band of brothers concerned about the salvation of mankind from the yoke of the priests, the capitalists, the kings, and the forces of darkness in general. I don't think even in this period he could be said to have been a particularly prominent figure in this brotherhood. People liked him very much because he was very nice. But on the whole, his brain was not the equal of that someone like Marx, or even like someone like, like that someone of Bakunin, and he was simply thought of as a very nice man who cared deeply for the salvation of mankind and had radical views. Rather like Owen in a way. 1848, uh, founded in Brussels, helping Engels and Marx to write the Communist Manifesto, which he helped them with in 1847. 
In fact, he collaborated in a, in a way called German ideology with Marx, with sort of large pieces printed, written by Hess, and equally large pieces denouncing him as an absolutely worthless thinker, all this down in one volume. It shows something from the tolerance and good nature of Hess. We had no objection to writing a chapter in a book which denigrated him more violently than any other book that has ever been written. It's a curious fact, but apparently a true one. At this period, what Marx had against him, and what he always, all his life had against him, was that Hess was too moral, that his communism, even his socialism, sprang not from the notion that history was inevitable, or that it was the only efficient way of governing mankind, or that it was unavoidable, or that it was a class called the proletariat which could not help, so to speak, winning the historical battle. He simply believed in socialism and communism because he thought they were just. And what he wanted was justice for mankind. His impulse and his motive was moral. And Marx constantly says about Hess, it's a great pity, he talks in the name of general humanity. General humanity is an abstraction. He doesn't understand what it is to belong to a class. And it is perfectly true that Hess, although he recognized the validity of Marx's analysis of class structure, that is to say, he believed that there were entities called economic classes created historically by the developing economic conditions, didn't believe in the inevitability of class war, nor did he believe in the inevitability of violence. And all his life he preached the doctrine that if sufficiently violent means were taken, then the purposes which these means were used would not come about, because the violence of the means would create a universe in which these good ends could no longer be realized. And it's difficult to maintain that he was not a better prophet in that respect than Karl Marx himself. But one can see why Marx was irritated. He was irritated by a man who constantly quoted the Bible, brought up by a quasi-rabbi, who was constantly telling him about the difference between good and bad, when the whole point of the Marxist revolution was to get away from these stale moral categories and preach the revolution in the name of an inevitable process for which we only needed to appeal to men's reason and not their moral feelings. And this gap remained between them to the end of their lives. The revolution of 1848 didn't really crush Hess as much as it did a great many other revolutionaries who had invested all they had in the revolution of 48 and who emerged from it in a state of extreme defeat. Either they crossed over to the enemy or they simply went off into a kind of resentful silence, writing memoirs justifying their own part and blaming everybody else. None of these things was done by Hess. He simply moved off to Switzerland, from there to Belgium, from there to Holland. He went to Marseille and opened a brush shop. The brush shop didn't last very long, of course. He went bankrupt very, very soon because he was not a very astute businessman. But by this time, he inherited a fourth part of his father's fortune, who died about this time. And on this rather modest fortune, he and his wife settled down to live in Paris in about 1853. And there he began to study the sciences. Because for some reason, he decided that it was important to study physics and physiology because the future of mankind lay with the rational utilization of scientific data. And so he taught himself physics, chemistry, physiology, to no great effect, but still he um, undoubtedly did possess certain knowledge of it. Indeed, he even wrote a book about it, which appeared posthumously, which some people think highly of, although I cannot say I haven't looked at it, that it appears to be anything but a hodgepodge of the most extraordinary um, combination of theology, physics, and metaphysics. However, that's by the way. In the middle 50s, he settled down as a journalist. He was a contributor to various newspapers in the Rhineland, in Switzerland, and even to German newspapers in America, in Chicago. And he began to take an interest in the movement for Italian liberation. He also became a great friend of La Salle. He spoke about La Salle as having um, Goethe's head on Jewish shoulders. And they became great friends, indeed, until La Salle's death. And he became, began to help La Salle with his great new um, Federation of German Workers, which was the foundation of the German Social Democratic Party. That is to say, he led the ordinary life of an emigre radical. 
The Italian movement, however, carries effect upon him. Moses Hess was never exactly opposed to nationalism. He always supposed that for the purposes of a peaceful, united mankind, not the abolition of nations was necessary, but their union. And unless there were nations, you couldn't unite them. He rather followed with great sympathy, as Marx did not, the movement of the Italians to liberate themselves. Naturally, Hess had a most violent prejudice against the Roman Church, which he regarded, like all radicals of his day, as the chief source of darkness and oppression among nations, not only the source of the oppression of his own people, the Jews, but of course also as a major factor in the disunity, economic backwardness, and general squalor of Italy. And in this respect, I think most, most Italian radicals agreed with him. And in the course of thinking about Italian unity, and about the overthrow of the papacy by the new Italian patriots led by Mazzini and Garibaldi and so forth, he, I think, began thinking about his own nationality, the Jews. Towards the end of the 50s, this trend of thought began. And he began to wonder whether a risorgimento was reserved for the Italians alone, or whether perhaps his own people might not itself go through some similar process. Whether La Salle's national brand of socialism, for he was collaborating closely with La Salle at the time, had influenced him, or whether his ideas grew according to some inner pattern of their own, there's no doubt that he spoke and wrote after having become acquainted with the Italian movement like a man transfigured, like Descartes or Hume or Rousseau after some extraordinary transforming experience which altered their vision of the world. And it was then really that he returned to Cologne under an amnesty produced by Bismarck in 1861, and published his book, a very surprising book, called Roman Jerusalem, which is really the subject, <laughs> fundamental topic of this lecture. No notice of his book was really taken at the time, immediately. A little notice was taken in the German Jewish papers, but not very much. And certainly no interest was taken by the political by either political specialists or general readers. But on the educated German Jews, it felt like a bombshell, as indeed it was intended to do. Even today, almost a hundred years after its publication, when much of it is necessarily obsolete, and a great deal that must have seemed wildly utopian has in fact come to pass, it still impresses one as a masterpiece of analysis. It is penetrating, it is clear, it is candid, and it is very honest. And it's filled with extremely disturbing home truths, calculated to cause acute discomfort to the liberal assimilations among the Jews everywhere. And in spite of its occasional rhetoric, it's profoundly, and at least to me, irresistibly moving. It's a description of the Jews in the West, it's a profession of faith, and it's a program for the future. The pinpricks of his cosmopolitan socialist friends no longer affect him at all. Moses Hess had obviously had a growing consciousness of what it was to be a Jew in Europe, mounting within him, ever since insult of Becker in 1840 with regard to the Wachtam Rhine. Perhaps the Damascus case, at least so he says. To this he gave expression, which he had for a great many years repressed in order to give himself over to the work of the proletariat. Finally, it proved too strong to stifle, and he at last wrote a book and felt at peace. Roman Jerusalem consists of a preface, 12 letters written to a bereaved lady, an epilogue, and 10 supplementary notes. It deals with a vast variety of subjects, but the essential tone is given near the beginning of the book in the first letter in which the author says, I quote the book, Here I am again, after twenty years of estrangement, in the midst of my people. 
I take part in its days of joy and sorrow, in its memories and hopes, its spiritual struggles within its own house and among the civilized peoples in whose midst it lives, but with which, despite 2,000 years of common life and effort, it cannot achieve complete unity. One thought which I believed I'd extinguished forever within my breast is once more vividly present to me, the thought of my nationality, inseparable from the heritage of my fathers, from the holy land, the eternal city, the birthplace of the belief in the divine unity of life and in the future brotherhood of all men. This typical combination of socialist universalism and the Bible marks all Hess's writings. He's rather like a Jewish version of Christian socialism, we'll find. Hess goes on to say that nationality is real. Nations are real historical growths, like families and like physical types. To deny this is to falsify the facts, and springs as a rule from such motives as fear and cowardice. In the case of the Druze, the ringing phrases which some among them use against nationalism as medieval prejudice are only an attempt to disguise their desire to dissociate themselves from what Hess calls the unhappy, persecuted, ridiculed people. And this must create a false situation that becomes increasingly unbearable to everyone. Europeans have always regarded the existence of the Jews as an anomaly. It may well be that the progress of justice and humanity will one day lead to justice for the Jews. They will perhaps be emancipated, but they'll never be respected, says Hess, so long as they repeat the principle, ubi bene, ibi patria, that's to say, where conditions are good, there is my country. Denial of nationality forfeits everyone's respect. Naturalization is no solution. He quotes, uh, let me quote again. It is not a pious old Jew who would rather have his tongue cut out than misuse it by denying his nationality. It is the modern Jew who is despicable for disowning his race because the heavy hand of fate oppresses it. Beautiful words like humanity and enlightenment that he scatters so lavishly to cloak his treason to his fellow Jews will not save him from the stern verdict of public opinion. It is no use pleading various geographical or philosophical or historical alibis. The modern Jew is despised for trying to leave the sinking ship. I quote again, you may don a thousand masks, you may change your name and your religion and your mode of life, you may creep through the world incognito so that nobody notices that you are a Jew. Yet every insult to the Jewish name will wound you more than a man of honor who remains loyal to his family and defends its good name. Some Jews in Germany think they may save themselves by modernizing their religion or finally by conversion. But this won't help them. Neither reform, he says, nor baptism, neither education nor emancipation will completely open before the Jews of Germany the doors of social life. The Germans are anti-Jewish racially. The tall, blonde Germans are very conscious of the small, dark Jews as being different from themselves. What the Germans hate is not the Jewish religion so much as the Jewish noses. Consequently, what the Jews attempt to deny is not so much their religion as their race. But their noses will not vanish, their hair will remain curly. Their type has, after all, remained unaltered, he says, since the ancient Egyptian death reliefs, upon which the Semitic type is quite unmistakable. The type persists. They are, they are he says, a race, a brotherhood, a nation, whose own existence is unfortunately denied by its own children, and one which every street urchin considers it his duty to despise so long as it is homeless. Homelessness is the heart of the problem, for without soil, men sinks, man sinks to the status of parasite, feeding on others. The German Jews cannot understand this. They are genuinely puzzled by German anti-Semitism. 
They feel that their true patriots, soldiers who have fought and will again fight for Germany, tutor maniacs as fiercely hostile to the French as any other German. They say they will never, never get it to the free German Rhine as fervently as other Germans. Yet when Becker, who, who wrote this song, insulted me, Moses Hess, he says, who tried to say it to music, it was, in a sense, a perfectly natural, though no doubt vicious, act. Chauvinism is a vice, but a racial vice, for races exist, and the Jews belong to a race other than that of the Germans. To deny this is to falsify the facts. To be a race of a nation is not to desire racial or national mastery. It is a disease of nationalism to seek to dominate others. But Jews, like other people, need a normal national life. Semites and Teutons are not mere linguistic categories, he says, but the titles carry no claim to superiority in themselves. Each race has different gifts, and they all contribute to the enrichment of mankind. The Aryan race, according to Hess, have the gift of explanation, that of science, of creating beauty, of creating art. The Semites' genius lies in their ethical insight and their sense of holiness in the sanctifying of the world by religion. There are no superior and no inferior races. All races are equal, and all races must be made free, and they will cooperate as equals. Like other, like many Christian and Muslim peoples, the Jews have slept a deep sleep under gravestones upon which various preachers have inscribed their sleep-inducing formulae. But the crowing of the Gallic cock has awakened the kingdom of the sleepers, and the French soldiers of progress will break the gravestones and the peoples are beginning to rise from their graves. Just as Rome, which since Innocent III has been the city of eternal sleep, is today gradually being resurrected as the city of eternal life by its doughty patriots who fight for Italian freedom, so Jerusalem too will arise, hence the title of Roman Jerusalem. The waters of the Tiber, the sound of the victories in North Italy, awake the Jews in their slumbers and resound in the hills of Zion. This is very typical rhetoric of the time. He declares that he too was sunk in a deep dream. It was only in 1840, when the charge of ritual murder was hurled against the Jews of Damascus, that he realized where the truth lay. It dawned on me, he says, for the first time in the midst of my socialist activities, that I belonged to my unfortunate, slandered, despised, and dispersed people. And he goes on to say that he stifled his cry of pain because of the greater sufferings of the European workers. But the awakening of Italy has made him realize that the last of all the national questions, the question of Jewish nationality, must obtain its solution. This question has too long been concealed behind the illusions of the rationalists and the philanthropists who deny the national character of the Jewish religion. The religious reform movement among the German Jews has done nothing, he says, but bring emptiness into Jewish life and break off bounds from the ancient Jewish tree. With a shameful lack of pride, the reformers recommend the Jews to conceal themselves among other nations. With what result? They change their names only so that the anti-Semites might dig up their original Jewish names and fling them in their faces. So the poor Maya Bear, the composer, is now constantly called in all anti-Semitic newspapers as Jakob Maya Lippmann Bear. And Ludwig Berner always called Bar Baruch, which is indeed his real name. Even socialists in Germany indulge in this pastime. This situation is surely humiliating. The Jews of the Middle Ages were persecuted and massacred, but by remaining steadfast and faithful to their ancestral values, they avoided degradation. Modern Jews, especially those who have changed their names, deserve a contumely which openly or secretly is constantly being heaped upon them. Hess proceeded to be as good as his word. First he changed his name from Moritz to his Hebrew name Moses. He said he was sorry that he was not called Itzik. Nothing is worse than flying under false colors. 
in a movie passage, quite early in the book, he says that, rather interesting, I don't know how, how much rabbinical authority there really is for this. He says that Moses was not buried in the Holy Land, whereas the bones of Joseph were carried there, because according to the rabbis, when Moses presented himself before his future father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, to sue for his daughter's hand, he didn't reveal his true origin. That is to say, he allowed himself to be taken to the Egyptian. He didn't say he was Egyptian, but he didn't say he wasn't. Whereas Joseph revealed himself to his brethren and never disavowed anyone or anything. Because of one moment of weakness, Moses was forbidden to be buried in the land of the ancestors whom he had by silence abjured. What then are the Druids to do if they are not to remain sorry hypocrites among nations? Heth says that the Druids are made Palestinian patriots by their religion. When his grandfather wept, when he read to him Jeremiah's vision of Rachel in her tomb in Ramah, when he showed him olives and dates, saying with shining eyes, these come from the land of Israel, he was many miles from his native Rhineland. Jews buy Palestine earth on which to rest their head when they are buried. They carry sprigs of palm bound in myrtle during the Feast of the Tabernacles. And, he might have added, they pray for rain or dew at the seasons at which they were useful in the Holy Land. This is no more, this is more than a superstition or a dogma. Everything which comes from Palestine, everything that reminds them of it, moves them and is dear to them in a way that nothing else can. If the Germans are only prepared to accept them at the price of denying their race, their religion, their temperament, their historical memories, their character, the price is not only morally too high, but not capable of being paid at all. The proposal is not only detestable, but quite impracticable. Nor is the solution we found among those fierce, fundamentalist religious fanatics, who with their heads buried in the sand, denounce all science, all aspects of modern secular life. Well, he asks, are the Jews to build a bridge between what he calls the nihilism of the reform rabbis who've learned nothing and the conservatism of the orthodox who have forgotten nothing? There is only one solution, and it awaits the Jews upon the banks of the Jordan. The French nation will aid them. France, the great liberator, the first to break the ancient shackles and herald the civil liberties of the Jews as those of other peoples. France must, once it's built the Suez Canal, Make it possible for the Jews to establish colonies on its shores. For without soil, he says over and over again, without soil there is no national life. But who will go to this barren eastern country? Not, he says, the Jews of the West. They will stay in various European lands in which they have gained education, culture, honorable positions in society. They are too deeply bound up with Western civilization. They have lost their vitality as Jews. They will not wish to immigrate to a remote and barbarous land. They may place their knowledge, their wealth, their influence at the disposal of the immigrants, but they won't go themselves. For them, Palestine will be at best what Hess calls a spiritual nerve center. Universities will arise there in a common language which all Jews will speak. Who then will go? There is no doubt of that. The Jews of Eastern Europe and of other lands where the ancient faith has kept them solid and insulated from their environment. It is they who will move. Their vitality is like that of corn seeds, sometimes found in the graves of Egyptian mummies. Given soil, light, air, they grow and become fertile. The Jewish assimilationists who detest what they call religious obscurantism desire to root out these superstitions. But to crush the rabbinical shell in which Judaism is contained is to crush the seed within. It needs not destruction, but earth to grow in. Then there is an extraordinary excursus, very odd, on the Hasidic movement. Whereas the reform movement inspired by Moses Mendelssohn is an attempt to dilute Judaism and free the Jewish people on foreign soil, which Hess thinks is impossible, the great revivalist secular Hasidim is a genuine development of the Jewish religion, he says. A response to the authentic need for life. 
unlike the reformers who are using the timber of Judaism for non-Jewish ends, and secretly share Heine's view that the Jewish religion is a misfortune rather than a religion, forgetting that even converted Jews, whether they like it or not, are painfully affected by the condition of the Jewish masses, the Hasidim are a living force among the Jews. It is true that Hess confuses the name of the founder of the Chabad sect of Hasidim, and he speaks of an apocryphal character called Samuel of Vilna instead of Schneer Zalman. But what is remarkable is that any great communist agitator in Paris, or in Cologne for that matter, should have heard of this movement at all, and should have realized that so very early a date in 1861, that the founder of this movement, the Baal Shem, was destined in the end to be more effective than Moses Mendelssohn. For Hasidism and Zionism were and are living forces in the sense in which the reform movement, with all its humanity, all its civilization, all its learning, is not. It is the benighted beings, it is these benighted beings, of whom there are millions, says Hess, in the dominions of Russian, Prussian, Austrian, and Turkish empires. The Jews of these backward provinces who will go to Palestine and create a new state. There, the existence of Jewish self-identity will not need to be, as he puts it, either demonstrated or demonstrated away. As for the other Jews, they will, if they want to, assimilate to the countries of their birth. And so, they will at last win respect as men who recognize themselves to be a foreign origin and have, by an act of free choice, decided to change their nationality, succeed in getting more respect than those who pretend they have no nationality to exchange. Even the Germans who today, that's the 60s of the last century, even the Germans who, in the 60s, despise all the painstaking efforts of their Jewish fellow citizens to Germanize themselves and care nothing at all for the cultural achievements which the Jews are forever enumerating, will, once the Jews are a nation, give them as a nation what they refuse to give them as individuals, rather like Dr. Adenauer. But that day may not be near, and in the meanwhile, religion is the great preservative of Judaism and must not be diluted or brought up to date. The Jewish religion says, yes, surprisingly for a communist agitator, the Jewish religion is the foundation of all egalitarianism and socialism, for it recognizes no castes, no classes, and assumes the interrelation of all creation. It allows no feudalism, no social hierarchy. It is just equal and the true source of the noblest social movements of modern times. It does recognize the principle of nationality. It excludes chauvinistic nationalism, such as that of Prussia, as morally wrong. But equally, it leaves no room for its contrary artificial cosmopolitanism, which by denying even the just claims of nations, falsifies the facts, sets up illusory ideals, and with its bogus prospectuses, lures innocent men to their doom. The first condition of true internationalism is that there shall be nationalities. Internationalism movement not to abolish, but to unite nations. Hence, Hess welcomes the renaissance of Jewish historiography among German Jews, and quotes with approval names like Weil, Compert, Bernstein, Wiel, and above all, of course, Gretz, who became his friend, and from whose history, history of the Jewish people, people, says Hess, not church, not religion, he copiously and happily quotes. Everything that Hess had suppressed for 20 years now came welling up. He constantly returns to beliefs instilled in him by his father and grandfather. He says, I myself, had I a family, would, in spite of my dogmatic heterodoxy, not only join an orthodox synagogue, but would also observe in my home all the feast and fast days, so as to keep alive in my heart and in the hearts of my children the traditions of my people. He denounces all forms of compromise, all forms of adaptation, Prayers must not be shortened. 
German versions must not be used instead of Hebrew. Jewish preachers must be held in greatest honor. What he fears more than anything is nihilism, where a form movement is, he simply regards as something thin, unconvincing, a pathetic and vulgar imitation of Christianity, a counterfeit modern substitute for something ancient, genuine, and valuable. If he must choose, he says, he'd rather keep all the 613 rules of the Jewish religion. One day, perhaps, a new Sanhedrin, meeting in Jerusalem, will change or abrogate them. Till then, the Jews must save what they possess, their spiritual heritage unmodified. He mocks at the fictitious missions invented by some Jews as the sort of thing which they think the Jews are called upon to perform among the nations, say, to teach toleration to other religions, or the doctrine of pure theism, theism or even the arts of commerce. It is better, says Hess, for the Jew who doesn't believe in a national regeneration of his people to labor like an enlightened Christian of today for the dissolution of his religion. I can understand how one can hold this view. What I don't understand is how one can believe simultaneously in enlightenment and in the Jewish mission in exile. That is to say, in the ultimate dissolution and the continued existence of Judaism at one and the same time. Do the Jews who wish to sacrifice their historical past to such abstractions of liberty or progress rarely imagine that anybody will be taken in? Does Meyerbeer really think that anybody besides himself is deceived because he, Meyerbeer, so sedulously keeps off biblical themes in his operas? Having settled his account of the German Jews, Hess turned to the practical problem of the colonization of Palestine. He noted that Rabbi Hirsch Kalischer of Thorn had already drafted a plan for such a movement. He notes that Monsieur Ernest Laran, in a book on the New Oriental Question, supported this view. Laran, at this time one of Napoleon III's secretaries, was a Christian and an early Zionist. He denounced the rich emancipated Jews for their indifference, the pious Jews for their defeatism, and said that a state in Palestine is the only solution to the Jewish problem. He believed that only the Sultan and the Pope were obstacles to this plan, but that French democracy would prevail against both. He spoke of the fundamental right of the Jews to historic home, and he believed, I think a little too optimistically, that the Turks would, for a handful of gold, toss them by rich Jewish bankers, admit large Jewish colonization. He spoke lyrically of the mystery of the Jewish survival, of the fact unparalleled in history of mankind that faced by enemies in every age, Romans, Europeans, Asiatics, Africans, barbarians, feudal kings, grand inquisitors, Jesuits, modern political tyrants, they yet survived and multiplied. The French and the Jews must march together. Together they must revitalize the parched land of Palestine and rescue it from the terrible Turk. French democracy, Jewish genius, modern science, that is to be the new alliance that would save an ancient people and revive an ancient land. Well, Hess, as you can all imagine, welcomed this initiative on the part of Monsieur Laran, and in a very apocalyptic mood, he said that the national solidarity and unity, which is the base of the Jewish religion, would gradually make all men one. Natural science would liberate the workers, racial struggles would come to an end, and so would those of classes. Jewish religion and Jewish history, a vast amalgam in which he included the teachings of the Old Testament and the Talmud, the Essenes and Jesus, said to men, be of the oppressed and not of the oppressors, receive abuse and return it not, let the motive of all your actions be the love of God and rejoice in suffering. By this gospel, the world would be regenerated. But the first requirement is the establishment of the Jewish state in Palestine. 
The rich Jews must buy the land and train agricultural experts. The Alliance Israelite must help Rabbi Natanik of Stuhl Weissendorf in Hungary, who is ready to interview the Sultan with a letter of recommendation from the Turkish ambassador in Vienna. Jewish colonists must be led by men trained in modern methods of thought and action, not by obscurantist rabbis. The plan can be realized, it must be realized. Nothing stands in the way but bigotry. Bigotry and cosmopolitanism, from both of which the Jews recoil instinctively. On a note of high enthusiasm, Hess ends his sermon. I must say, he had traveled a very long way from the anti-religious communism and anti-nationalism of his younger days. The fierce attack on assimilationist performers was, of course, in part an attack on his own dead self. The solution, which consists of dignified national dissolution by means of systematic intermarriage and by educating children in a faith different from one's own, which he now so fiercely denounced, was the very conduct that he himself had earlier advocated. The conscientious internationalism of his young Hegelian days was replaced by the realization, which seems destined to come sooner or later to every Jewish thinker about social themes. Realization that the Jewish problem is something sui generis and seems to be in need of a specific solution of its own, that it resists the solvent of even the most powerful universal panaceas. Even Trotsky, we are told, when he was an old revolutionary living in Paris, after Hitler's persecutions, was brought to concede that the Jews were a nationality and did need a country of their own. Nor was this, in Hesse's case, any more than that of Trotsky, simply the final reaction of an old, persecuted, exhausted old socialist, who, tired of waiting for the realization of his universalist dreams, settles for a more limited nationalist solution, and returns to the days of his youth to escape from the excessive burden of the universal social struggle. To think this is to misunderstand Hess profoundly. He was a man who left no belief unless he convinced himself by rational methods that it was false. His Zionism did not cause him, for example, to abandon socialism. He felt no incompatibility between communist ideals and a belief in a Jewish national resurgimento. Hess was not like Hegel or Marx, a historical thinker of genius who broke with previous tradition, perceived relationships hitherto unknown, imposed his vision on mankind, and transformed the categories in terms of which men think uh, about their past and their destiny. But nor did he suffer from the defects of these despotic system builders. He was intellectually scrupulously honest and he felt no desire and no tactical need to force the facts. The strongest single characteristic of his writings, especially of his later works, is a pure-hearted devotion to the truth, expressed with candid, at times childlike, simplicity and innocence. It is this that makes his words often so very devastating, and much causes them to linger in one's memory longer than the weightier and perhaps wiser sentences of the more celebrated prophets of the age. Hess didn't abandon either socialism or Zionism because he saw no incompatibility between them. His socialism, which was simply a desire for social justice, didn't preclude nationality. He could see no inevitable collision between anything that seemed true, that responded to genuine needs, that was morally good, and anything else that did that. It didn't really occur to him that it could be right to tell the Jews not to celebrate the Passover or not to celebrate their religious duties because these were an ancient survival of a barbarous civilization. He took it for granted that one truth or one value couldn't require the suppression of any other value. Consequently, the moral values of socialism and the truths embodied in the sense of one's individual or social or national or human past could not, in principle, for him, clash. Life would be gratuitously impoverished by the sacrifice of anything good or true or beautiful. 
It is this idealism, this naivete, that the tougher-minded revolutionaries detested and derided in his day precisely as they do in ours. After being LaSalle's representative in Cologne, five years after publishing Rome and Jerusalem, he proceeded to join the first international working men's association, founded, as everybody knows, by his old comrade-in-arms and remorseless denigrator, Karl Marx. Hess represented the workers of Berlin in the First International and in 1868 and 1869 as a Marxist, fought the representatives of Proudhon and Bakunin, old friends whom he loved and admired because he thought their doctrines were disrupting working-class unity. He wasn't exactly an orthodox Marxist. He didn't believe in violence, he didn't believe in class warfare. And he was a full-fledged Zionist avant la parole. But he was a socialist. And when he talked about the Jewish state in Palestine, he said that the soil of that country must be acquired by the Jews in a single hole in order to prevent private exploitation. He regarded full legal protection of labor among the future colonists as a sine qua non. He said that the organization of industry, agriculture, and trade must follow mosaic, for him synonymous with socialist principles. He wanted to see in the new Jewish state cooperatives of the type organized by La Salle in Germany, state-aided, Till such time as the proletarians formed the majority of the inhabitants of Palestine when the state would automatically, peacefully, and without revolution, become a socialist commonwealth. All these ideas met, as may well be imagined, with an exceedingly unfriendly reception among educated Jews, particularly in Germany, against whom Hess's sharpest sallies were directed. Such words had never before been addressed to them, and very seldom after. They had been much adjured and much discussed. Mendelssohn and his followers had accused them of clinging senselessly to the ghetto for its own sake, of blind avoidance of a magnificent opportunity of entering the world of Western culture that was at last open to receive them. The Orthodox charged them with godlessness, with heresy, with sin. They were told to cling to their ancient faith. They were told to abandon it. They were told to adjust it to modern life. They were told to dilute it. They were told to emulate German culture by critical examination of their own antiquities. They were told to be historians, scholars, higher critics. They were told to enter Western civilization by their own door. They were told to enter it by doors already built by others. They were told not to enter it at all. But in this great babel of voices, nobody yet proposed to them to recognize themselves for what in fact they were, a nation. Odd, sui generis, but still a nation. And they were to give up nothing, avoid self-deception, not to seek pers to persuade themselves that what wasn't theirs and had never been theirs was dearer to them than what was theirs, and to give up with pain and an unbearable sense of shame what alone they could truly love, their own habits, their own outlook, their memories, their traditions, their ancient national being, their pride, their sense of self-identity, all that they, like other people, were and lived by, all indeed they could respect in themselves or that others could respect in them. Indeed, others, Englishmen, Frenchmen, Italians, probably understood Hess rather better than the emancipated Jews to whom he spoke. No people struggling for its country, said Hess, can deny the Jewish people the right to its own land without the most fatal inconsistency. And so, in the 20th century, it duly and honorably turned out. But in the circumstances of the time, his words were very wounding to many, not least because they were true. Educated parvenu in Christian society, he called his opponents, with more bitterness perhaps than justice. Their reaction may be imagined. The most eminent German Jewish scholar of the day, Steinschneider, expressed himself with comparative moderation and called Hess a repentant sinner, adding the hope that the book would not be exploited by the enemies of the Jews already in Palestine. The celebrated scholar and publicist, the advocate of reform Judaism, Abraham Geiger, 
whose disavowal of nationality and intense effort to feel and think like a German of Jewish persuasion has a period in telling language reacted with very understandable hostility. An old romantic, he said about Hess, an old romantic with new reactionary plans. An almost complete outsider who after bankruptcy as a socialist and all kinds of swindles wants to make a hit with nationalism. And along with the question of restoring Czech and Montenegro nationality, suddenly wants to revive that of the Jews. The Allgemeiner Zeitung des Judentums said, were first and above all Germans, Frenchmen, Englishmen, Americans, only then Jews. The growth of civilization will surely cause the Zafa Palestine to evaporate among the Eastern Jews. And so the debate, which as everyone knows is by no means over yet, began. More than 30 years before the word Zionism had been so much as heard of. The Alliance Israelite Universelle cautiously opened their journal, the, Arch the Archive Israelite, to Hess and offered tepid support. The Alliance, the Alliance, was attracted by the notion of having a gifted publicist, but they were rather frightened of the notion of immigration into Palestine, although they were prepared to support the Jews who were already there. The scandal caused by the book died down. So far as one could determine, it had had no influence at all. The return of the Jews to Palestine had after all been talked about before, not only by pious Jews and Christian visionaries, but even by Napoleon, by the Russian Revolution as a Decembrist pestle, by the Jewish publicist Joseph Salvador, by the eccentric English traveller John Lawrence Oliphant, and by other obscure figures. It's possible that George Henry Lewis, when he met Hess in Paris, had discovered his views, communicated them to George Eliot, who then put them into his novel Daniel Deronda. All this is of no account in a world where no one, except perhaps a few groups of Jews scattered in Eastern Europe, and oddly enough Australia, took such matters seriously. Hess was not destined to see even the beginning of the fulfillment of his ideals in his lifetime. <coughs> the rest of his life is characteristic enough. Like other impoverished radicals, he worked for various foreign newspapers and was quite a good predictor of European history, rather better than Karl Marx, who also wrote for an American newspaper, but was rather less good at foretelling events. He, in 1870, as a Prussian citizen, he was expelled from Paris, although, of course, he was violently pro-French and violently anti-Bismarck. He went to Brussels, where he called for an alliance of all three people against Prussianized Germany, a country the intent on destroying France only because France wanted to make humanity happier. In 75, he died in poverty as he had lived, tended by his wife, by his devoted wife, and by his own wish was buried in the Jewish cemetery in Deutz by the side of his parents. His posthumous work, Dynamische Stofflehrer, was published by his wife in 1877 as a pious monument to his memory. She said that it was his life's work. But believe me, it's a confused, half-philosophical, half-scientific mishmash of no interest or value today. I must um, confess that his biographer, Dr. Vlotsisti, thinks otherwise. The first theoretical communist in Germany and the first practical Zionist in history died long before he could have obtained even a glimpse of his promised land. His real life's work is a very simple, very moving book which still contains more truth about the Jews, both in the 19th century and in our own, than any comparable work known to me. There is a little more to be said about him. Like other intellectually honest and fearless men, he turned out to the deeper understanding of certain essential matters than many more gifted and more sophisticated social thinkers. In his socialist days, and the only ceased with his death, he said that the abolition of property and the destruction of the middle classes did not necessarily and automatically lead to paradise because they didn't necessarily carry injustice or guarantee social or individual equality. And this was quite original, quite bold for those enthusiastic days. 
His allies were men who were dominated by a desire for a clear-cut social structure and a rationalist, rather than a rational desire, to solve social problems in almost geometrically black and white terms. They tried to treat history as the exact science. They tried to deduce from the study of history some unique plan of action guaranteed to make men free, equal, happy, and good. In this very dogmatic and very intolerant milieu, Hess allowed himself to doubt whether any single solution could ever in principle achieve this, unless and until the men who built the new world themselves lived by the principles of justice and were filled with benevolence towards individual human beings, not merely humanity at large. That is to say, only when they possessed characters' outlooks which no amount of political reform could by itself secure. It is surely a sign of immaturity however noble and however disinterested, to stake everything on some final solution to social problems. When to such immaturity there is added a ruthless will and a genius for organization which enables their possessors to force human beings into patterns not related to their nature and their wishes, then usually what starts as pure and disinterested idealism ends in cruelty and blood. A sense of symmetry and regularity and a gift for vigorous deduction which is a prerequisite of some of the natural sciences, would make grave limit lead in the field of social arrangements and lead to appalling bullying on one side and dreadful suffering on the other. <coughs> Even at the unavoidable price of being denounced for foolishness and idealism by his admired despotic friends, Marx and Engels, Hess couldn't bring himself to view the world through their distorted spectacles. He believed in the permanent validity of certain general human values. He believed to the end of his days that human feeling, natural affection, desire for social justice, individual freedom, for solidarity with historically con continuous groups, families, religious associations, nationalities, were to be valued as being good in themselves. He didn't believe that these deep human interests were necessarily altered by historical evolution, or conditioned by class consciousness, or by other transient phenomena. As for the relative value and importance to be attributed to the desire for national independence. Surely one could say that recent events, even in Hungary and Poland recently, show, if nothing else, that orthodox Marxist interpretation of what national solidarity is and what influence it has even upon the working class of countries no longer capitalist is contained grave fallacies which we have all experienced to our cost. This is only the most recent and spectacular example of what has so very clearly and without the slightest trace of chauvinism or morbid nationalism. And that, which is very surprising after all, in the context of extreme left-wing socialism, of which he was one of the most purest and most devoted and most lifelong proponents. Consequently, I think that even his claims as a socialist, as against his critics, are not too difficult to sustain today, and his significance has been underestimated mainly by Marxists to the greater glory of their own creed, but to the grave disadvantage of the truth. In his view, the Jewish question, as it used to be called, has proved to be almost uncannily accurate. His view of the Jewish question has proved almost uncannily, I, I think in his view of the Jewish question, he proved almost uncannily accurate as, as a prophet. In one of his most sibylline passages, he says, the liberal Jews of Germany will one day suffer a cataclysm the extent of which they can't begin to conceive of. Nobody will deny that at any rate this prophecy has proved to be only too dreadfully verified. He preached assimilation against assimilation in its very heyday, with full knowledge of what it was, for in his younger days he had himself been in favour of it. Everything he said about the false position 
into which their simulators have put themselves and their victims seems to me on the whole vindicated by the events that followed. Today, nobody can pretend not to know what he means by his reference to philosophical or geographical or historical alibis because, to which human beings try to escape because they can't face embarrassing truths about themselves. Hess had observed that the Jews were in fact a nation, however skillfully definitions were juggled, to prove that they were not. And he said so in simple and to some people startling and very shocking language. One thing seems quite clear, and that is that the State of Israel, whatever attitude may be adopted towards it, couldn't have come into being if the Jews had been such as Hess's opponents supposed them to be. Whether they were Orthodox rabbis, or liberal assimilationists, or violent communists. He has, furthermore, proved to be right in supposing that the Western Jews would not, of their own volition, choose to emigrate, whatever the difficulties they encountered in their various communities, because in the end they were too happy, too comfortable, too well integrated in them. He believed in natural science applied to create social welfare. He believed in cooperatives, in communal endeavor, in state ownership, at any rate in public ownership. And to a large degree, these principles have today been realized in the State of Israel to a larger degree than is pleasing to those who favor our forms of social organization. Moreover, he believed deeply in the faithful preservation of the historical tradition. He spoke about this in language scarcely less fervent, but a good deal less biased and one-sided than Burke or Fichte. And this he did not because he feared change. After all, he was a radical and he was a revolutionary, but because through his most extreme and radical beliefs, there persists a conviction that there is never any need to maim or impoverish oneself for the sake of an abstract ideal. That nobody can or should be required to vivisect himself or to throw away that which affords him the deepest spiritual satisfaction known to men. Right to self-expression, right to personal relationships, right to the love of familiar places or forms of life or beautiful things, or to the roots and symbols of one's own or one's family's or one's nation's past. Hess believed that nobody should be made to sacrifice the unanalyzable relationships, the central emotional and intellectual experiences out of which human lives are compounded, to offer them up even as a temporary expedient for the sake of some tidy solution deduced from very abstract, very impersonal premises, from some form of life derived from alien source imposed upon men by artificial means and felt to be the mechanical application of some general rule to a concrete situation which it obviously does not fit. All that Hess, towards the end of his long life, wrote or said, rests in the assumption that to deny what one knows to be true, to do violence to the facts for whatever tactical or doctrinal motive, is degrading and doomed to futility. The foundations of his beliefs, both socialist and Zionist, were unashamedly moral. Moreover, he was convinced that moral beliefs played a major role in human affairs. And the socialist morality that he so pure-heartedly preached, as well as the type of nationalism that he idealized, have on the whole proved more enduring and more productive of human happiness than the more realistic solutions of his more Machiavellian rivals, both on the right and on the left. For this reason, he is surely to be counted among the genuine prophets of our own day, who said much that was new, true, and turned out to be of the first importance. This is the achievement of the communist rabbi, of the man whom Karl Marx, when he felt in a particularly good humor, used to call the donkey Moses Hess. Thank you.